0: Continuing on in our series of the book of Luke, and we're looking at Luke chapter 6, 12 to 26. Uh, Luke 6, 12 to 26. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to them and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask uh, as we come to this challenging passage, Lord, that you would help me to uh, speak your words truthfully. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would convict each and every one of us and show us what the true blessed life is. Transform us, Lord, because every one of us in various ways are seeking what will not last and what cannot satisfy And so we pray, Lord, that you would change our minds, rewire our hearts, so we would long for you and the life that you propose more than anything else. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as uh, I said in the kids' message, saving money can be really hard, especially when you're six. And in particular, because there is a dollar section at Target. I'm sure many of you have been there, and it's right at the entrance where you walk through, and every kid immediately takes a beeline over to see what is in the dollar section. And so you spend your money, but then as you get further on into Target, you see there's a Lego set that you really want, and it costs $90. And it's heartbreaking when your parents tell you, well, no, because remember, you spent all your money last trip at Target, and you don't have any money left. Well, how much money do I have? maybe two dollars. And in your six-year-old mind, you think, okay, I'm getting close. And perhaps you decide to start saving money. And so you get to six dollars. But soon you face a tremendous temptation the next time you get to Target, because there's the dollar section. And with a little help from your parents or your older sister, you realize that you can now buy six things there instead of just one. And all your money goes away. You know, the older we get, we aren't as tempted by the dollar section, but saving money can sometimes be just as hard. We are still living for something that we want. Our wishes just get a lot more expensive, right? Maybe a certain vacation or to live in a certain place or to have a, a cabin or whatever it might be. You have some picture in your mind of what that good life looks like and you're trying to achieve it. Or maybe you're upset because it's, your life right now is so far from what you've imagined it would be like. When you're a kid, the blessed life looks like toys. <laughs> and when you get older, you still have some idea of what the blessed life looks like. It just changes, as I said. If, if you were to look on Instagram for posts that are tagged with blessed, the first couple that I saw were pictures of a, a man holding an expensive watch, uh, another person posing in the mirror to highlight his muscles, a young family Relaxing on the beach. You know, what is your blessed life that you're seeking for? And today in our passage, Jesus shows us a picture of the blessed life. And it's so much different than anything that any of us would have picked. He turns that idea of the blessed life on its head. And we're in this series through Luke called, The King Has Come. Because Luke tells us of this arrival of the king of creation who's establishing a new kingdom. And he shows us what the blessed life in that kingdom looks like, and it is so much different than any of us would have picked. So what blessed life are you seeking? What blessed life are you seeking? And we're going to look at it in three points. Building a new kingdom, principles of that kingdom, and then living for God's kingdom. So first, building a new kingdom. It's still relatively early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, but he's started to go viral. He's getting more and more people coming from all over the region to, to follow him and to be healed by him and to see what he will do. And these people, many of them are called his disciples. And it's easy to forget that Jesus had many more disciples than just the 12 that we often think about. He had perhaps hundreds throughout his ministry, although as time went on, that number decreased more and more. And Jesus is about to choose 12 of them to be part of his inner circle. And from a human perspective, these 12 disciples that he's about to pick is one of the most significant decisions that he will make in his life, because these are the 12 that will carry on and and really define so much of Jesus and his ministry and what Christianity looks like after Jesus is gone. And so Jesus, before he makes that decision, goes up to the mountains to spend the night in prayer. And why does he do this? Is he going up to the mountain to pray because he wants guidance from God for what 12 people should he pick? That could be the case, although certainly we would do that before a big decision, but Doesn't Jesus know who he should pick? I mean, he often seems to have certain unique insights into things that we don't have. Another option is maybe Jesus is going because he knows the significance of who he's going to pick, including a man by the name of Judas who will betray him in a little while. And his own heart is burdened by the significance of this decision. This seems like it could fit well with Jesus. If you remember right before he is arrested, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and his heart is torn up by what he knows he's about to face in his death. For, For whatever reason, Jesus felt like it was important to spend the whole night in prayer. Now, when was the last time you spent the whole night or even most of the night in prayer? I don't think I ever have. I've spent nights when I can't sleep tossing and turning and kind of sending quick prayers up, you know, asking God to let me sleep. But Jesus often spends extended periods of time in prayer. And if he did that, don't you think it would be important for us to do that as well? To make prayer a priority, not just short prayers, those are important, but longer periods of time where you can get away from distractions and pray. And even if Jesus knew who he was going to pick for his disciples, he still prayed. You see, prayer isn't just giving a laundry list of the things that you want from God. It is asking God for your requests, and that's important. But another part of prayer is that it helps shape your own heart before God. It helps you calm your heart to help you trust God more, to help you trust his ways more, to trust his plan, even know when you know that his plan involves picking a disciple who is going to betray you and lead to your death. And sometimes we wonder, what's, what's the point in prayer if God has everything worked out already? But Jesus still prayed. It wasn't a reason why he didn't think he should pray. And again, sometimes prayer is as much about shaping your own heart as it is about giving your request to God. Well, the sun rises, and Jesus comes down a little bit from the mountain and, and calls his disciples to him, and he picks 12 of them, and it says he designates them as apostles. Now, uh, apostle is a word that literally just means someone who is sent. In the New Testament, it takes a little more specific meaning where it means someone who had seen the risen Jesus and was now commissioned to go and tell others about him. The apostles are called the foundation of the church. And so that's why we don't have apostles today and that you don't keep building a foundation, but it is something that is laid first and everyone else uh, rests on top of that and that we hold to that same faith of the apostles. So this brings us uh, to the next point. Jesus is picking 12 disciples. That number's significant. It reminds us maybe of those 12 tribes of Israel. Many have noticed that in Jesus choosing now 12 disciples or apostles, it is like he is building up a new Israel. He's starting from the beginning again, a new kingdom. But this kingdom is not based on what family you were born into, like it was for the Israelites, but in what faith that you profess. Do you profess the same faith that the apostles did and you're built on their foundation? So Jesus now walks even further down the mountain and he meets a a large crowd and people from all over have come to see him. Word is traveling across the region. There's this man named Jesus and he does amazing things. Many people who are sick or troubled with impure spirits come. And often, as we've seen, when Jesus heals someone, we have a whole story around it. And yet here, it's like there are so many healings that Luke can't describe them all. He just says that power was coming from him and healing them all. I mean, I'd love to know what that would look like. For some reason, in my mind, I see like this glow, this orb-like glow coming out from Jesus. And everyone who gets near to him, it's like, you know, wireless charging with your Mac you just, or your, your iPhone, right? You get it right on it and, and the light comes on. It's probably much more ordinary, though. People are just clamoring to touch Jesus, and when their fingers make contact with him, suddenly he's healed. I mean, it must have been incredible to watch, to touch this man, and your life is transformed. You get your life back. You aren't tormented like you were before. Jesus may have healed more people in this period than he had at any point up to this point. And imagine now, he has these 12 apostles who Jesus has picked Right? They, he picked them out of maybe hundreds of people to be his inner circle. And they're watching Jesus become a celebrity. And you can just imagine what goes through their minds. Man, we're going to be famous. Jesus is going to propel our careers. You know, we're going to ride on his coattails you know, all the way to the White House or wherever you want to go. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, verse 20, And he's going to speak to them. What's he going to tell them? Again, we can imagine what might be going through their minds. Oh, is he going to say, you know, as my official disciples, I'm going to teach you how to heal people. Or go out and tell everyone, free healings for everyone. No, Jesus looks at his disciples after they've witnessed this amazing scene and he says, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What? That's not what I signed up for. <laughs> Can I, you know, remove my name from being one of your disciples? And just a few comments here. Maybe reading this section rings some bells, even if you're not maybe particularly familiar with the Bible. These words also show up in another gospel, the book of Matthew. Uh, there it is called the Sermon On the mount, it's some of Jesus' most famous words, and many of those same words are here repeated in Luke. And this could be the same sermon that Jesus gave. Luke's just telling it from a different perspective. Jesus could have given the same speech in multiple places. We're not quite sure. But either way, what is clear is that Luke is emphasizing here, Jesus is giving a picture of the good life to his newly appointed disciples. Every advertisement you see gives you some picture of the good life. Even more so in our day and age with the rise of influencers, whether on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok, they are giving you pictures or literally or videos of here is what the good life looks like. And whether it's sitting at the beach, sipping a cold drink holding a 14-inch rainbow trout that you pulled out of a mountain stream, tending a charcoal grill while you smoke your pork, sipping coffee in your PJs in a perfectly curated living room. These are all pictures of the good life, the blessed life, the life that you're seeking for yourself. And the, the dollar section isn't as tempting for 40-year-olds, but social media knows exactly what 40 year olds like me want and it feeds me that stuff every single day and it knows what you want and it feeds you those things to give you some idea to make you discontent with what you have now and tell you this is the good life this is what you should pursue it's giving you a vision of the kingdom this is what's worth living for this is how you should prioritize your time your money your thoughts and so here is jesus and it's like he's about with his newly appointed disciples, he's about to make his first Instagram post telling people, here is the hashtag blessed life. And he's signed on these 12 new brand ambassadors who are going to represent that blessed life to others and, and share his teaching on their walls. And so he says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep blessed are you when people hate you. Like, No, 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 this isn't the blessed life. This is the very life I'm trying to run away from. And again, don't miss the contrast in this scene. Here are thousands of people being healed, getting their life back. People are clamoring to get near Jesus. He's becoming a celebrity. And he looks at his disciples and he says, actually, it's better to weep don't think the Christian life is all healings and miracles. No, it's often suffering. And Jesus uses this word blessed. I think blessed is a, a good translation, although we often can misinterpret what a blessing looks like. I mean, just search for hashtag blessed on social media, and I doubt you'd get a picture of a homeless person. Blessed, a malnourished child blessed. Jesus is turning the idea of blessing on its head. Let's spend a time looking at some of the things that Jesus mentions. And it is hard when we get to this. One commentator wrote on this section, he said, these verses over church history have been subject to the most diverse of interpretations. It is easy to kind of nuance what Jesus says so much so that it doesn't affect us or challenge us. It's easy to take the other extreme and overstate it. So it's saying more than Jesus is saying. It's easy to kind of fit it into your own preconceived ideas. And and as I worked on this sermon, I, I tried to be sensitive to this, and yet I realized how hard it is for me to come to this without my own preconceived ideas. So what I want us to do is just give you some things to think about. Some things that maybe challenge some of the assumptions that you and I have, particularly growing up in the culture that we're in and hopefully move us a little bit closer to that truly blessed life that Jesus talks about. Notice first, Jesus says, "'Blessed are you who are poor, "'for yours is the kingdom of God.'" And you might have picked up on here, Jesus says, "'Yours is the kingdom of God.'" Whereas if you look at the next statements, he says, "'Yours will be this thing.'" It's almost like Jesus is saying, do you want a shortcut to the kingdom of heaven right now? Seek poverty. You know, when you're poor, and, and, and maybe you know some of us were living in that place, or you know what that's like. Many of us, though, we have so much and we'd be afraid of this. And yet, when you are poor, if you've lost your job, or all your savings is wiped out you lose your house, and you're depending on God for your next rent check or car payment, you will discover a connection to God and his care for you that is hard to find when you don't have to worry about those things because you have savings. You have a good paycheck. And this is contrary to just about everything that our culture is built on. And then conversely, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. There's different ways to interpret Jesus' use of the word poor here. In in Matthew, it says poor in spirit, getting at another aspect. And yet here, it it seems that Jesus is also talking about financial wealth or poverty. Now, I, I think what we can say then is that the more... You take comfort in your financial security, the harder it will be to find comfort in God. Now, money is such a tricky topic. I don't think that Jesus is saying, well, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to get rid of all of your savings, all your retirement. You you can't choose a job where you're well paid. I don't think he's saying that. And yet, also, we've got to recognize that, you know, if I polled all of us, I doubt any of us, or maybe just a few of us, would say we're rich. Because you're always comparing yourself to those who have more, right, than those people who live off a fraction of what you make, which is the majority of the world. And yet, on the other side, the reality is it is much more expensive to live in the U.S. than in many other countries. And many places where there are more people who are poor, they at least have family farms where they can raise their own food. They have some housing security because maybe this land has been in their family for generations in a way that you don't have to, in a a way so they don't have to worry about it in the same way as we do where you're trying to make your mortgage or trying to pay your rent. And yet we also need to recognize that money is one of the top five things I think, that Jesus talks about. And it should push us out of our comfort zone and reassess many of our assumptions. Just some of the other things that Jesus says about money, to give us some context. You cannot serve both God and money. And yet, it is so easy for money to just get its web into all of our thinking, Jesus tells a story of a rich man who's done really well in life and and he's filled up all of his barns and so he builds bigger barns so he can fit all of this new and growing wealth in. And yet, God calls him a fool and takes his life early. And Jesus ends the story by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. There's another story. Later on in Luke, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He says, what do I need to do? I followed all the commands. And yet he walks away sad because he was wealthy. And Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And if Jesus would say this back then, then imagine what Jesus would say today for us in our consumeristic credit-driven culture, How much of God's kingdom are we missing out on because our hearts are too wrapped up in money? And the thing is, this isn't just for those of us who have a lot. Your heart can be so tied up in in money because of what you don't have, what you wish you had, what you see others have that, that you don't have. What kingdom are you living for? what are you investing in it's not wrong to save for our retirement there's a lot of wisdom in that particularly where we don't have land passed down like in as i said many other countries but are you also investing in god's kingdom are you investing in that kingdom that will last infinitely longer than anything on this earth And do you believe that the investments that you make in that kingdom will actually bring you a spiritual joy and contentment and good more so than all those things that we wish we could have right now? I want to push us, me included, to reconsider our relationship with money, how it controls us, how it keeps us from depending on God. Are you living or seeking the blessed life according to Instagram or according to Jesus? Are you rich towards God? Probably Many of you know we've been encouraging uh, you who are you know, members of the church and have made that commitment to the church to also encourage you to give to the church and to increase our giving to the church. And you know, practically, we've been talking about this is because we're behind on our budget. But as I've thought about it, It's also a spiritual thing. It's tied to our spiritual health. Can we as a congregation say that we are being rich towards God when what we give on average as a congregation adds up to probably just a few small percentage points of what we make? And why does that matter? Because your heart is shown in what you spend money on and where you direct your money. Right? We can say we want all kinds of things, but your credit card statement, your monthly bank account shows what your heart really values. Safety, security, look at all that I'm setting aside. Right? Whether, or consumeristic things, all these things. And, and you know, it's hard for me even to talk about this because as many of you know, my income comes from the church. And as much as I don't want it to, and as I wrestle with talking about these things, it's impossible for me to believe that even in talking in this, there's probably self-serving motives in my heart because, well, hey, then my own paycheck will be better secured. But you see, we've got to learn that giving is a spiritual act. That what we give, me included, I, I want to set the example in this, will help show you what you truly value. As I said, I want us all to be pushed a little bit to reconsider our relationship with money and ask what part of the blessed life am I missing out on because of how much I'm thinking about money or pursuing it or dependent on a certain amount to keep up a, a lifestyle I want or how much I need to save in order to feel secure. We all need to grow in this. And we live in a culture, you know, many of you probably heard that uh, story of you know, two young fish uh, swimming, and this old fish swims by, and, and one of them says, hey, how's the water? And they're like, good. And then a couple of seconds later, the two fish, you know, the young fish, one asks the other one, what's water? <laughs> right? And they live in waters so they have no idea of it. They're just used to it. And we swim in waters of a consumeristic, money-driven culture so much we don't even realize how much it affects us. I'm deeply challenged by this. Well, let's move on to another one. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. This is as much of anything opposite of what we think the blessed life is, weeping. But what comfort there is for those of you who have wept. Has your life been hard? Do you know heartbreaks that you will never get over? Have you had one stream of disappointments after another? One thing taken away after another? You've lost it all. Know that you are in a place where God sees you, and every one of those tears has been like storing up extra laughter in heaven. You're investing in your heavenly joy with every day you weep. God cares deeply about you. Conversely, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Again, remember, I think Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he's not saying, oh, you know, we should never have fun, we should never laugh. No, we we see humor, we see joy is is one of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's good to, to laugh and to have fun. But is that what you're living for? Are you so afraid of entering into other people's discomfort that you stay away from them because you don't want them to bring you down? It's a warning here for us getting too comfortable in our Christian lives where you insulate yourself from the sadness of others or the needs of others. You don't bear others' burdens because oh, I do not they're just such a need. They always bring me down every time I'm with them. God's grace will be enough for you. There is a time where we will rest, where we will laugh, where we will dance, where we will drink, and it's good to enjoy those things now in proportion. They are not your ultimate goal. If you only seek laughter now, it's more likely you will only know suffering in eternity. But if your life has been consumed by tears and heartbreak You have made an investment in the joy of heaven that will so far outshine anything that people experience here, the best of what people experience here. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you, your name as evil because of the Son of Man. If you are living as a Christian in our world, it doesn't matter if it's today in our culture or a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, you will, there will always be ways in which the world will hate you. It can change over time. But Christians have never fit in. Christians have never just been able to go with the flow of the rest of the culture. We might be reviled for not affirming what others want to affirm, for not speaking like others want you to speak, for not fitting into their box. And to be a Christian means you've got to be okay with sticking out a little bit, with being seen as weird. I think it's so important for us to teach our kids as well. And, you know, so often kids want to fit in. How do we help our kids realize it's okay to be different? It's okay to not do what everyone else says. You know, this ties in even to our church. How do we as a church create a culture for us and for our children that maybe normalizes and shows we're not just the crazy ones, but here is an alternate way to live, contrary to what the world says. And the thing that is so hard right now, I think this is one of the greatest challenges for the church, is because our country, our world, is so polarized, it is all the more tempting and easy for churches to get pulled into one of two camps, right? To either be more liberal or more conservative, right? And so to fall on the conservative side where you're willing to speak about all the things that the liberals are doing, but you turn a blind eye into ways in which our conservative culture is just as much against God's ways. Or to go to the other side and speak against all the crazy conservatives and all the things they're doing wrong, and yet turn a blind eye into where, where the liberal culture is just as much against God's ways. And to live in that place where we are able to be in that, that almost middle space is going to get lonelier and lonelier in our country. And yet it is the place, I think, where Jesus is. And his grace will be sufficient for us. And he will show us that that is the way. That the reward of living for Jesus, even if it makes everybody think you're weird, will far outshine the suffering you face right now. And then this brings us to our last point: living for God's kingdom. How are these things the blessed life? How is poverty? How is hung, being hungry, being reviled, weeping? But see, notice that Jesus just doesn't say those things are the blessed life, right? So get used to it. No, what does He say? For every one of these things, He says something better is coming. He doesn't just say it's blessed to be hungry. He doesn't say it's you're blessed if you cry a lot. No, for each of those things, he offers a better future where he says you will be satisfied. And how can he say that? Because the resurrection is the hinge point that turns everything on its head. That it says that the poverty of this life, the tears of this life, the suffering of this life does not end in death, but actually is death is the gateway to where all your tears will be transformed into a glorious joy. You see, as Christians, we miss out on nothing. Our culture, our own hearts tell you, no, don't live the Christian way. Seek everything now. Go for this because, man, look at all these people having more fun than you are. But when your timeline is eternity and the resurrection is a reality, you'll see that even the very best things that people have in this life are like the dollar store at Target, and there's $900 Lego sets back further, or whatever that thing is. Our best life is to come. To follow Jesus may mean that your life doesn't look like everybody else's, and it feels like you're going to lose out on these things that other people are enjoying but the resurrection tells you, no, you've got the timeline wrong. What other people think is the end is just the beginning. So are you living like the resurrection is a reality? Are you following in the footsteps of Jesus who didn't have a place to lay his head on this earth, but now after his death and resurrection has been crowned in glory and in splendor and is making a home for you? And this is so hard for us to live this way, man. Th- you know, th- this week as I was thinking about the sermon, I said, I want to live more this way. And then, you know, every ad you see or thing that you think of doing pulls you back into that other life. Our hearts tell us you need to seek the blessed life now. And, and what you do, what you make, what you look like, what trips you take. And th- those things aren't bad. But the problem is when you think those things are ultimate instead of seeing like the dollar section. Maybe a better way to think about it is those things are like the samples that you get at Costco that are telling you, you know what, you can buy a 50 pack of this. And that's what heaven is. For Christians, the best things in this life are only samples of the better things to come. So don't be content with the samples. And yet when we're swimming in that water, it's so hard to imagine a different reality. That's why the culture of our church is so important, that we need each other to remind one another a better world is coming. We need to show people the new reality of how the resurrection is a real reality that changes how you live now, that the road to winning is so different from everyone, what everyone in our world says. So what blessed life are you seeking? What are some of the ways that you've just bought in to our culture's ideas of the blessed life. And what are some things that you could do in your life to move you a little bit closer to that vision of what Jesus says is the blessed life. Let's pray. Father, these are truly hard things and and so much hard so so difficult to actually change in our life. Because this is the air we breathe. So Lord, maybe give us a taste of heaven. Give us a taste of the glory of Christ and to realize that is what awaits us when we seek Jesus first. Help us to see how transient everything here is. How all the things that we are living for, seeking, can only ever be like fine sand that slips through our fingertips. But you are something we can hold on to. You are the one who has made everything that is good. You know what it is like to laugh and to have pure joy. You know what it is like to have the good life. And that is the life you're making for us in heaven. So we pray that that heavenly reality will cause us to live more for it now. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.